You're listening to Talking Liberties with the ACLU of Illinois. Here's your host, Ed Yonka, Director of Communications and Public Policy. 2020 has given us a global pandemic, national protests for Black lives, and a presidential election. As the ACLU has worked across the country to protect and expand rights during this time, we've also been celebrating 100 years of protecting civil liberties. During the past century, the ACLU has distinguished itself by arguing in front of the Supreme Court more frequently than any organization save for the United States Department of Justice. In fact, the ACLU was just before the Supreme Court last week fighting to make sure that non-citizens are included in redistricting after the 2020 census. It is just one of the more than 400 legal actions against the Trump administration that we have filed and pursued over these past four years. We wanted to dig deeper into these hundred years of work by the ACLU and see how that has set up the organization for the battles of today. To help us consider this work, we are joined literally by the person who has written the book on the ACLU's history, journalist Ellis Coase. Ellis Coase is a Chicago native with a distinguished career in journalism, having served as a writer or editor for Time Magazine, for Newsweek, for USA Today, the Chicago Sun-Times, the New York Daily News, and the Chicago Free Press. For a time, Coase was a writer in residence at the ACLU National Office in New York, a position he stepped away from when he decided to write Democracy, If We Can Keep It, the ACLU's 100-Year Fight for Rights in America. Ellis Coase, welcome to Talking Liberties, and welcome back virtually to Chicago. Well, thank you. As you know, it's my hometown. was born there. I started my journalistic career there, so I have uh, lots of very warm memories of Chicago. Well, it's really great to have you. So events in Chicago, uh, people from Chicago, you know, played some role in the formation of the ACLU in 1920. But I wonder if you could just start this discussion by sharing kind of what you see as the the larger national trends and events that kind of drove the formation itself. Oh, sure. I mean, that's probably at least a three-minute little dissertation because you can't talk about the start of the ACLU, which, as we all know, started in January 1920, without talking about World War I and without talking about the predecessor organizations, because before there was an ACLU, there was something called the American Union Against Militarism. And that was an organization formed in 1915, uh, formed in New York. The director was a woman named Crystal Eastman. And the idea, it was put together by a group of progressives, uh, feminists, uh, women suffragettes, who were opposed to the getting the United States getting involved in World War One. You know, at the time in 1915, obviously Europe, the war started in Europe, um, but the United States was out of it, and there was this sense that the United States could stay out of it. Clearly, that was not a successful effort, but yeah, but the group became quite influential. The organization refocused, and out of that refocus came the National Civil Liberties Bureau. Uh, which was an organization that was fundamentally devoted to working with young men 
who a draft was initiated, who were being drafted into the war. And that organization was headed by Roger Baldwin, who was subsequently to become the founding director of the ACLU. That organization was involved in several activities, you know, including somewhat uh, below the radar, you know, in the defense of the IWW, the Industrial Workers of the World, which was a union that was prosecuted for effectively for speaking out against the war. Talking about a Chicago connection. I mean, that was a case um, that was uh, held in federal court in Chicago, uh, the largest such case in history uh, where you had over 100 people hauled into a court uh, and tried for violating the Espionage Act, um, which essentially they accused the union of doing by speaking out against the war. And Roger Baldwin you know, was a big supporter of the IWW uh, even before the ACLU became an organization. So now we so now we flash forward to 1919, which is you know the, the sort of the aftermath of the uh, IWW persecution. But then you have just chaos breaking out in the United States. You know there were there were this rash of bombings, the May Day bombings. There were there were big uh, strikes throughout the nation. There were race riots all over the country, including you know in Chicago, riots in New York. Uh, there there was an uprising um, in Elena, Arkansas, all over the place. There were essentially in the in the aftermath of World War One. Much of white America thought it was worth making the point to much of black America, which was at that time, some of which was just beginning to think seriously about equality after the war, fought to make the world safe for democracy, to make it clear to black Americans that no, this was not the time to talk about such things. And so there was there was all this violence, but there was also the initiation of the Palmer Raid, where there were these huge roundups of radicals, of suspected Bolsheviks and others who were being subject to mass deportation and massive repression. And so it was in that whole atmosphere that the ACLU was formed. And initially, essentially, um, a bunch of folks, including Roger Baldwin, who had gone to jail for resisting the draft, uh, were saying, well, you know, does this uh, National Civil Liberties Bureau have a life beyond? Should we think about doing something with this? And just a look at what was going on in society, the massive oppression that that followed World War One provided the answer. The answer was, so maybe there is a role for an organization, and maybe it's not the organization we have, but one that's going to be larger, more national, and focus on this whole area of repression, and particularly issues of speech, because the... The uh, Espionage Act and the Sedition Act, which were which were World War II measures, and especially the Sedition Act, were more effectively measures against speech uh, and, and measures to shut down dissent and debate. Uh, that's a long-winded answer, um, but it was. The, but that's the whole background for why the ACLU formed in in 1920. In Chicago, we talk a lot about Jane Addams being mm-hmm. part of the the founding. But but it's but you talk a lot about really the role that women played in founding the organization in the first instance. Sure, I mean initially, and it, and it was it was very much inspired by Jane Addams. I mean, Jane Addams was the you know, she she had led the Women's Peace Conference. She was a she was a just a towering figure, and she very much inspired uh, Crystal Eastman and several of the other women and men too. But but several of the people who came together around the ideas of the American Union against militarism, um, and at the time. I mean, you know, we're going back obviously 100 years. There was this sense 
that women were more sensitive yeah, to the issue of violence and war than men were and, and, and could communicate better on this. So in some sense, it was almost seen as a as a woman's issue. And, and, you, and this is all taking place against the backdrop of obviously the suffrage amendment as well. So, so there was a whole lot of, of emphasis um, in the role of women as well. The term civil liberties seemed to be one that hadn't been used a lot in America prior to the founding of the organization. And I wonder, you know, what you glean in terms of where that comes from, what signal it was intended to send by using that as the name. Well, it was it was sort of borrowed from from London. I mean, and, and, and from England. I mean, it, there had been a civil liberties organization there, um, and I think they were sort of looking for a broad way of describing, you know, the uh, the set of rights that they were concerned about, and. It, didn't quite seem to be civil rights they were talking about because that was already co-opted in a way by the fight for racial equality. And, and, and so it was just an attempt to come up with something that was sort of provocative and new and that would communicate that this was a broad-based organization that was concerned with not just one kind of liberty, but with a whole aura of things that, um, that ultimately ended up being essentially built rights. You know, given the the issues of the time and the kind of challenges that you talk about, what were, in your thinking, some of the earliest cases and and efforts where the organization really began to get notice or to to make an impact in some direct way? Sure. I mean, the thing to keep in mind is that in these early days, um, the organization was very small in terms of resources. I mean, it was essentially funded by money collected from members of the board uh, in, in, in large measure. And it was more an organization of associates than a bunch cleaning organization the way that it is now with a, with a big, big offices around the country. I mean, it had no offices around the country. It, and it had a, a few part-time people sort of involved, and it had connections with, a lots, with lots of different lawyers that could call in on specific cases, you know, but it was not the kind of organization it ultimately became. And so a lot of its activity, I think there were two kinds of activity. I mean, one was getting involved in in cases of the court of the sort that we've talked about or big issues at stake. Uh, the other was dealing with the legacy of World War One. I. I mean, there were a lot of people still in prison. Mm -hmm. People who have spoken out against the war and, and others, you know, who the ACLU focused on trying to get freedom for. Uh, Eugene Debs was one, you know, very prominent uh, anti-war um, individual uh, and socialist, you know, and very high profile initiative was fighting for his release. Also just fighting for the elevation of this set of issues and the focus on undoing some of the harms that were done, um, you know, with, with the Sedition Act, et cetera. And the other thing worth keeping in mind, um, because it was such a small organization, uh, was that a lot of what it did was, in a sense, almost symbolic. I mean, it would organize uh, little guerrilla theater type events where uh, they would go to some city square where uh, there was a local ordinance that didn't allow people to convene unless they were, unless they had the permission of uh, city authorities or, or, or the constable or whatnot. And they, would, and they would hold readings of the First Amendment, or readings of the Constitution, rather. Um, and they would get arrested, and then they would go to court, and, and these cases would be, would, would be adjudicated, uh, essentially just to make the rights that Americans had the right to speak, and that it was not a, a right that could easily be infringed upon by, uh, by local governments, et cetera. 
And it's probably worth noting for at least some of our listeners that, in fact, at that time, those kinds of ordinances weren't uncommon. The Supreme Court had never actually ruled in favor of someone's individual free speech right. The other thing, and well, that's true, and, and, and these ordinances, because they were state and local ordinances and whatnot, it wasn't clear they were even covered by the First Amendment. Um, that didn't happen until later. That happened in, what, 1925, where there was a uh, Supreme Court case which uh, you know, Gitlow v. New York, you know, which which essentially established that the First Amendment applied to the, and that was a that was an ACLU case, you know, essentially established that the uh, the First Amendment applied to states as well and to local local governments. Uh, before that, it, it had been assumed largely that it okay to the extent it applied, and it really was not was sort of largely ignored through much of our history. But to the extent that it applied, it was a federal right. Uh, it was a right against uh, having speech shut down by the federal government, not by state governments and, and local entities. And so that was an important advance, even though the uh, the case itself was lost by, by the defendants. The principle of, of expanding the reach of the First Amendment uh, became a very important thing. And in much the same way, in thinking about your, your notion of, of sort of using these events to kind of shine a light on these issues, um, the, 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 the trial, which probably everybody has heard of, the Scopes trial in Tennessee, again, not successful in and of itself, but it shines a light on these issues for the rest of the country to sort of consider in a new way and, and, and think about moving forward with. Well, that was probably the trial that made the ACLU famous. I mean, it was, it was huge news. Uh, it was 1925. Tennessee had passed this ordinance. Um, basically prohibiting the teaching of evolution. And a young photogenic uh, teacher, Stokes, you know, was selected uh, to be the base of protest for this. I mean, essentially, this was, this was a case where Roger Baldwin, who was then head of the ACLU, actually solicited uh, his involvement and solicited the involvement of folks in Tennessee because he knew this was going to be a high-profile case uh, that, and wanted to make this not just a case about the Tennessee statute, but a case uh, that was going to nationally say something important about separation of church and state and, and about the, the role of the First Amendment. And Clarence Darrow, who was um, probably the most famous defense attorney of the day, was a close ally of the ACLU, and he became the uh, the, the, the defense attorney in this case. Uh, William Bryan's Jennings, you know, um, the former presidential candidate, um, was the opposing counsel uh, in this case. So it was uh, so it was this this clash of titans uh, in this little town in Tennessee, and was attracted huge, huge national press. It really did put the ACLU on the map, and, and it established it fully as a national as a nationally recognized organization. And as you say, um, the ACLU lost that case. Uh, John Stokes lost the case. Uh, it was forty years before uh, that law was was actually overturned. Um, but <laughs> but the point was made. Yeah, sometimes sometimes our biggest wins are losses in in, in the long run. I want to skip ahead a little bit. Because sure. um, I, I guess in, in part kind of thinking about, you know, a, a, at least a couple of, of decades to the 50s, the 60s and the 70s, the ACLU's docket really begins to expand. Mm -hmm. And I, I wonder if I have you talk a little bit about some of those areas in which it expanded and the way it did and starting with sort of 
the area of civil rights and 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 racial segregation and what what sure. you know what were some of the areas and cases where the organization really began to work in those areas? Yeah, well, civil rights, of course, exploded hugely uh, beginning in the early fifties. I mean, there have been cases simmering all along. But especially with the events in Montgomery and, and in Selma and, and et cetera, beginning with, with from the early to mid 50s forward, um, it became this huge area of interest. And the ACLU up until that time, we had, certainly had been involved in racial issues before. One of the early reports, I think going back to what, 1931, uh, was a look at uh, race in America, a very, a very uh, frank account, uh, and very critical account. Um, the ACLU was involved, though mostly behind the scenes. In the case of the Scottsboro Boys, also mm -hmm. going back to the 30s, mm -hmm. for its first 30-plus um, years of existence, the ACLU basically took uh, second place today to the NAACP. It would say, okay, these, these are NAACP-type cases. We will be supportive of them, um, but this is not what we do. You know, we, we let others... You know, someone else, specifically, they, but mostly they, the, the NAACP, take front and center stage on this. And that continues to be the case for a long time, even after that. But the, but the ACLU was getting more and more directly involved. It was, it was um, getting attorneys uh, who were handling many of these cases. Uh, it was writing Friends of the Court brief in many of these cases, including, including um, Brown v. Board of Education, which was uh, you know, a very important case, which the ACLU uh, weighed in on, uh, specifically looking at the role of education in the formation of, of what you would essentially call mental health of, of, of young uh, African-Americans. And it was around that same time in the early 60s that the ACLU formed its uh, Southern Regional Office, which became a center of high-profile uh, activity. And that takes you e even to a, a case that, in the minds of most people, is not really a civil rights case. Um, I'm talking about Sullivan case, um, mm -hmm. which was a uh, which which was largely a First Amendment case. I mean, it, and, and it's, it's it's one that's looked as at, as one of the most important in history. But that case started out because a group of um, black ministers had taken out an ad in the New York Times, essentially to raise money for their work with Martin Luther King. And in the course of laying out their case uh, in this ad, which appeared in, what, 1960, I believe, in the course of laying out their case, they made certain allegations about the sheriff, uh, about you know, what he and his people had done, and, and about uh, things that had happened to King. And in the course of that, uh, they made some, some small factual errors, which the police official seized upon to haul them in the court for libel and won a half million dollar libel settlement uh, against them in an Alabama court. Uh, and the point of that, of course, had little to do with actually having been libeled. It was, it was an attempt to shut down the civil rights movement and also to shut down the, the Yankee press, uh, the New York Times in particular, uh, which was covering this stuff. And so that case made its way to, through the Supreme Court. And it was another case that the ACLU weighed in on uh, and resulted in 
uh, first of all, you know, importantly, the, the throwing out of this of this case and the decision that just having some small factual errors was not enough, you know, to win a libel case, particularly if you were a public official of some sort. That you, that you need to prove to prove actual malice, and it's you know, and for the black ministers who were sued, it was it was a godsend. I mean, some of them had had lost their cars and other things as a, as a result of this crazy suit. And it established an important principle. And in, and although that's not normally looked at as a civil rights case, it's an important one. Uh, and one of the other big areas that the ACLU was involved in in, in those years uh, was forcing the integration of juries in the South. You had this huge problem. For the most part, Blacks were excluded from juries. And Charles Morgan, you know, who headed the, the Southern Regional Office, made it a mission of his to change that and was quite successful in uh, at least causing a, a lot of change in those areas. So you, so you saw a market increase in those years in the ACLU getting involved in civil rights issues, partly because the, the ACLU itself had grown. Because initially, as I mentioned, the ACLU didn't have much of a staff. Uh, it didn't really bring cases at you know, as such. It, it, it sort of did a lot of friends of the, of the court stuff and whatnot. As the years went by, it built up a, a, a really impressive group of lawyers who worked directly either for the ACLU or with the ACLU. And this growth was reflected in them becoming more and more directly involved in cases, not only in the arena of civil rights, but in other areas as well. So let me let, let's talk about one of those areas, and you've you've had the perfect lead in here because let's talk about maybe the most famous ACLU staffer of all time. The ACLU expanded its work into women's rights throughout the '60s and '70s under sure. the leadership of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about you know how that really all came together and how that expansion really affected the docket of the organization. It came together in a few ways. I mean. Uh, one is that Ruth Bader Ginsburg was a, a, a very exceptional and interesting person. And she was, say, a person who was Harvard and, uh, and Columbia University Law School um, educated. So she ultimately ended up in, in legal education, you know, at, at Rutgers and eventually became, began to work with the ACLU occasionally on, on several cases. And that ultimately grew into, by the time she got to, she was the first full-time, I believe, female professor hired by Columbia Law School. And when she got there, she made as a stipulation of her employment that she could spend half of her time working with the ACLU. Uh, that played right into Aria Nair, uh, who would become the director of the ACLU and was interested in a woman's project that they could start, you know, under the aegis, because he was a new executive director in the early 70s, you know, and he wanted to um, do new and exciting stuff. And part of the new and exciting stuff, you know, we're, we're talking, you know, a few years after the uh, the women's movement had sort of uh, shaken America and the whole, in, in the whole area of laws as concerned women was a very hot and evolving area and one that it seemed ripe for the U.S., for, for the ACLU to get involved in. And the presence of someone who was as talented as Ruth Bader Ginsburg uh, seemed to godsend. And they used that to bring her on as director of the, uh, the Women's Rights Project. Uh, I had the, uh, the, uh, the privilege of interviewing her for the book. Mm -hmm. And she's a very interesting woman. And one of the one of the stories she told 
was that one of the funders that she ended up getting involved with that was Playboy, you know, which was a which was a, a big funder of of sort of women's rights issues back then. And she said that the that the consequence of that was they would send out solicitations and mailings, and they would be they they would arrive with a bunny stamp, you know, from the uh, from the Playboy Foundation. She became obviously a monumental and towering figure, period, but certainly in terms of the ACLU's history. I want to ask about a, a couple of, of specific cases that, that I think are kind of hallmarks of the ACLU's work throughout the 20th century. And the first one is is the Loving versus Virginia case sure. and, and, and the the striking down of interracial marriage bans. How did the ACLU come to be involved in that case? Mrs. Loving, she wrote a letter to Robert Kennedy following you know, one of the big civil rights uh, speeches that I guess John Kennedy had delivered back in, in the 60s and said, you know, okay, so we're in this area of civil rights and, and uh, equality. Uh, and she basically said, look, I'm, I'm, I'm a Negro person, partly of American Indian heritage, and, and, and I've married, I married this white guy, and we need help. She and her husband, Richard Loving, uh, had, um, had violated the Virginia statute uh, by living together and had been forced to leave Virginia and they had moved to DC where they were raising a family and they were and they were doing you know reasonably okay but really missed the ability to be able to visit their relatives uh, back in Virginia and to make a long story short i mean the people in the justice department effectively said well not certain that we can help you with this but we know some attorneys connected with the ACLU uh, you ought to get in touch with them. Uh, and they connected um, the Lovings you know, to the ACLU and the, and the rest, as they say, is pretty much history. The decision came down and they, oh, and it invalidated all these so-called miscegenation laws you know, in the South that had previously prohibited interracial marriages. I'm talking to you from Illinois. Mm-hmm. So in terms of talking about ACLU cases, um, it's hard to resist one of the most, I suppose, notorious cases uh, in ACLU's history, the, the defense of the neo-Nazis who wanted to march in Skokie. Sure. And I, I wonder, just sort of thinking about that case now, what impact you think that had on the organization then, and what of that you think still lingers today? Wow, I think it had a huge impact. And there's also a background that's worth um, just sort of noting. I mean, the from its very early days, the ACLU had pretty much staked out a territory for itself whereby it was less concerned with the content of speech than with the protection of speech itself. And, and it took the position very early on that because of this, uh, it would even defend the KKK and it would even defend uh, Nazis, at least it would defend their right to speak, even if it disagreed with them. And in the 1930s, it actually authored a pamphlet uh, as, as, as Nazism was on the rise, you know, obviously in Europe, um, in Germany specifically, the ACLU uh, authored a pamphlet, um, the title of which was something along the lines of why do we defend Nazis? And the argument that it made was essentially this, that there's no good way to decide to defend free speech if you don't decide to defend all of it because there's because someone is going to find pretty much any speech objectionable 
Uh, and our position has to be a defense of the right to speak, uh, not necessarily of the content of speech. And so that so that was sort of uh, holy writ uh, within the ACLU at the time. And so you flash forward to 1977 when this sort of crazy neo-Nazi group decided that they wanted to march through Skokie, partly just because they knew it was going to outrage people. This was, and of course, Skokie at the time was home to a lot of Holocaust survivors. There's a suburb of Chicago, um, heavily Jewish, and Skokie uh, was not having it. Uh, passed ordinances which said, which uh, basically outlawed the march. It didn't specifically identify them, but, but outlawed the kind of march they were they were trying to have. So the group went to the ACLU of Illinois and said, will you help us? Uh, and the ACLU said, okay, fine. And, and, and it was the decision at the local level uh, in Illinois and Chicago was not even controversial. They didn't even you know, get a sign off from National you know, initially because it was just the sort of case that they took. And so they were astounded when it blew up the way that it did. And the way that it blew up was that you know, all of a sudden there's all this publicity about the ACLU defending neo-Nazis who want to torment a bunch of Holocaust survivors in Skokie, Illinois. And it, it created um, an, uh, both an external and an internal crisis. There were lots of critical commentary about them. There were hundreds, if not thousands of letters people sent in, uh, many of them declaring that they were going to withdraw their membership from the ACLU. Um, they suffered a, dropping in, uh, a drop in, in their fundraising. It was really a, a bit of a crisis. The way that, that the ACLU began to work itself out of this was that the then young attorney who was handling the case, um, a guy uh, named Dave Goldberger, was assigned the task of uh, responding as to why the, the ACLU was doing this. And he was, he was gonna respond in a fundraising appeal. He wrote a draft and then they weren't happy with the draft. And so it got handed over to a, a bunch of others who drafted a quite eloquent letter which he had to approve, which, which David Goldberger approved and, and rewrote rather extensively. But essentially, it made the argument that the ACLU had made in the 1930s, although it had updated it a bit. And essentially, you know, David Goldberger said, look, these kinds of cases are just a small fraction of, of what we do here at the ACLU. We do a lot of important work. And even with these kinds of cases, even as I'm defending, you know, these Nazis, and, I'm, and, and, he, and he was so offended that he would not even capitalize the word Nazi. He said, "I'm, gonna, I'm not going to, I'm not going to give him that dignity of capitalizing Nazis." But he said, "Even, even as I, as I defend Nazis here, you know, I'm defending civil rights workers in Selma, Alabama." He said, "And the exact same things that Skokie wants to do to prevent the Nazis from marching, you know, in Skokie, are the things that the anti-civil rights folks in Alabama want to do." to keep the folks in Alabama from marching. And I can't defend them and their right to do that without also defending the rights of the other Nazis here to do that. So please understand what we're doing and please understand that we don't stand for Nazism, we stand for free speech. Uh, it became the most successful fundraising uh, letter that they had put out uh, to that time. And, and uh, they used it for several years since then and ultimately ended up turning around, uh, which was a crisis. But a, a little footnote is that in, in actuality, the crisis was probably not as large uh, as the ACLU sort of made it out to be at the time. They, they did lose some funding, but not as much as 
they thought they had lost. And, 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 and also, um, this happened to all uh, coincide because it, it was a few years after the impeachment uh, of Nixon and the ACLU had gotten a huge boost in funding because it had, it had called for the impeachment of Nixon. Uh, and that was also appended uh, as part of a fundraising effort. So every year after Nixon resigned, they were getting a little bit less funding as a result of that effort. And that happened to coincide with, with, the, with the Nazi thing. Um, at that point, the ACLU's books were also not being kept very well. So it, was, so it was hard to really track what was happening and why. So the long and the short of is it was a huge crisis and it and it redefined in many ways the the uh, ACLU but in terms of the actual financial impact it was probably not as much of a crisis as the ACLU made it out to be but in terms of defining the ACLU it was pivotal um, and and that uh, which you probably expect you know takes us to Charlottesville which was the case you know what three years ago now I guess again you had a, a you know a sort of whites rights group you know, defend the right I think is what they were calling themselves in Charlottesville again asserting their right you know, to have a racially charged protest um, in the middle of, of a of a town which which um, had experienced that before I wasn't particularly welcoming you know to it and the city didn't try to Charlottesville in this case didn't try to stop uh, the protest, what it decided to do was to try to move it uh, out of the center of town to another park where it would be less disruptive. Uh, and they went to the to the ACLU and said, "Can you help us?" And the ACLU again is, is using you know the same philosophical rationale they use in uh, Skokie. Said, "Well, this is what we do." So took the case, won the case, got them permission to have their protests in downtown Charlottesville. Uh, as we all know, who, who have followed that to some extent, that uh, so-called plant march became a, a debacle and a tragedy. I mean, the uh, it was so much violence uh, even before the march, the Saturday of the march, and, and so much threatened violence. Um, there were uh, weapons being brandished um, legally since since Virginia is an open carry state. Uh, police, for safety reasons, decided to cut the march short. And, to, and to, before the protests actually officially began, a young man took it upon himself to, who was a, uh, a follower of um, Adolf Hitler, took it upon himself to, to ram a car, you know, into a group of protesters and a group of anti-racist protesters. Uh, ended up injuring several, killing one, and again, it kicked off a huge internal debate uh, within the ACLU and outside the ACLU, essentially, which could be summed up as, what in the world are you folks doing defending people like this? What, why, why are we still doing this? You know, particularly when we have a president who seems hostile to minority rights, when we, when, when we have a, a, a growing problem with hate speech in this country and, and a newly empowered uh, white supremacist movement, what in the world is, is the ACLU trying to accomplish? Um, as you know, I'm sure better than I do, it caused a lot of soul searching internally, uh, it, it, it resulted in several convenings um, and discussions. It resulted in somewhat of a change in policy, not a major change in policy, but a decision to, in effect, review more closely some of the cases they were taking uh, and also to categorically not defend people who seem to be inclined towards violence or intended to brandish weapons, et cetera. But it was one of these things that reopened and all wounds, uh, and reopened questions that had all that seemed all but settled, but clearly are not. 
uh, as to, in a, in a larger sense, as what is the role of a uh, civil liberties organization when it comes to issues like speech? Is, is it really the obligation of organizations like the ACLU to defend speech so objectionable, especially when it could lead to deaths and violence um, and real harm to people? Um, I think that discussion's going on to this day. Uh, Absolutely. Let's move on. One one of the things I'm interested in is how do you think that the ACLU then responded and was positioned to respond to the attacks of 9-11 and kind of the government response to those attacks? Well, that's an interesting question because, it, because you know, as you know, 9-11 happened to occur as the as there was a leadership transition you right. know, taking place uh, within the ACLU. The, the current uh, executive director, Anthony Romero, had barely taken the job uh, at that point. Uh, and I think was uh, in, in Washington at a meeting, um, one of his first sort of national meetings, when the um, when the incident hit. And there was uh, just shock and horror you know, all over the world, not just obviously in the ACLU world, and a stunned sense of how do you respond to this thing. And I think the first thing that Anthony and the group around him decided to do was to not respond, you know, uh, off the top of their heads. They, they, they said, wait a minute, let, let's just try to, like, see what's, you know, how we feel, what's going on, what's happening here. Let, let's, let's not do a knee-jerk response. We know that civil liberties always get in danger when you have these kinds of things, and, and we don't want to just issue an immediate sort of you know, defense of civil liberties and whatnot. Well, let's, let's just sort of hold our fire for a while. But ultimately, of course, you know, what happened, you know, what, what you would expect to happen happened. Um, there were measures, there, there were attempts to use this to reimpose various uh, restrictions on speech and various restrictions on legal rights of, uh, of folks who were suspected terrorists uh, or suspected of having the, the potential to be involved in terrorism. And there was, a, there was the so-called Patriot Act uh, and, other, and other legal measures that the ACLU got very actively involved in. But it became one of these issues where, as so often happens, and this and this would happen with any organization that's 100 years old, the ACLU had to again, once again, sort of redefine where it stood and to what extent, and how and and and, and how you weigh the right of free expression of speech, the right of uh, of, of not being unfairly incarcerated, etc., uh, against the real threats, you know, to the nation's national security. And, and that has been, I think, an ongoing sort of sort of issue. Uh, it, it brought the ACLU into the into the universe of deciding what to do with with say Ed Snowden when he when mm -hmm. he when when he was decided to become the big whistleblower speaking out against surveillance um, that was taking place um, domestically and illegally, catapults the ACLU again into deciding where they're going to stand on this and to what extent they're going to become the the protector, for lack of a better word, of someone like Ed Snowden, which obviously you know, the ACLU decided to become, decided to become his, his attorney in that case. And and it's interesting, the, the, again, balancing the national security and expression issues and issues of immigration and others, you know, takes us all the way back in some ways to the founding of the organization itself at that time. Oh, yeah. Well, those are the fundamental organizations that were raised um, by Palmer um, right. back right. In, in 1919. Um, yeah. the, the very same issues, you know, 
the rights against deportation, the, the, the rights against um, being treated differently just because you were from a group that had been, some members of whom you know, had been accused of various acts um, that were anti-American. Uh, is precisely the same thing, except that in the 1990s, the other you know, groups were people from Russia, largely in Eastern Europe, and, and suspected Bolsheviks and, 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 and anarchists. Uh, whereas in the wake of 9-11, obviously, um, there were Muslims, you know, and people from, from Arab countries, but you had the same issues of freedom to deport people who hadn't actually been convicted of anything. And also discrimination, discrimination uh, against entire groups uh, because of because they were linked by religion, you know, or by ethnicity uh, with other people. At the time that Donald Trump was elected in 2016, right. you know, I, I'd been with the organization for more than 15 years, and one of the things that still stands out to me, and I don't know that I'll ever forget, is that first night of the Muslim ban. Mm -hmm. When the hundreds of people surrounded that courthouse in Brooklyn where Anthony Romero and Legal Learned from the Immigration Rights Project went in and got the, the, nation, the first nationwide ban against enforcement of the, right. of the Muslim ban. And there was that group of people chanting, ACLU, we are here, we stand with you. Right. And I, I just, I was stunned, I, I just admit, that night and by all of that. And I wonder what you think, you know, having looked at the arc of history, you know, what it, what was it that made an, a, a nearly 100-year organization like the ACLU kind of ready for that moment and for these last four years? Well, I think a couple of things. I mean, one thing is that um, with the rise of Trump, the ACLU did something I'd never done before statements that Trump was making about what he intended to do were so egregiously opposed to civil liberties in so many areas that, that even before he took office, the ACLU made it clear that it was going to be a voice of opposition against him. I mean, it, it did something shortly after he got elected. I mean, the, the, the day after he was, um, he was elected that it had never done before. It took out a full page ad uh, basically saying to Trump, uh, look, Mr. President-elect, uh, if you do what you're threatening to do, we're going to have to fight you. And we're going to be waiting in court you know, to do that. It was, true to, it, it was true to itself. But I think the other thing you have to really sort of give uh, at least some sectors of society credit for is that we have learned, or at least some of us have learned, say, a few lessons in the last hundred years. And you have this history. I mean, you, you, you can't imagine something comparable to what happened nationally uh, in terms of the response to the Muslim ban back in the 1920s, the same kind of repression then. You, know, you, can't, you can't imagine a massive sort of citizens uprising, you know, saying, to Attorney General Palmer, no, no, this is wrong. You know, you, you can't imagine movie stars and others going on TV and, and, and saying, you know, donate to this organization that's fighting the Attorney General who's trying to deport and, and discriminate uh, against people from Eastern Europe and, and Poland and Russia and et cetera. Some Americans at least, you know, have paid attention to history and have realized, okay, you know, it may feel good in some ways to try to fight this stuff by saying you're going to ban these groups, but that's not the real problem. Uh, and it doesn't solve much of anything. It just creates more problems. And again, it creates problems um, for us here in America. Uh, and that's not who we are. 
Uh, that's not what we should be standing for. And and so and so I, I think when you talk about the reaction you saw in the early part of the Trump administration as the administration attempted to implement what he had promised to do all along, uh, is simply a reflection of folks who are drawing on that hundred years of knowledge and 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 saying, hey, good as this may make some people feel, uh, it's just not right and it's not effective. On the other hand, obviously he was doing it because it does appeal to a huge constituency. And there are a lot of folks who are still very comfortable. I mean, you know, a large part of, of Trump's appeal is, is anti this, anti that, anti people who look a certain way, anti people who believe a certain thing, et, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, that still works. And so it's just an illustration of how you know complex we are as a country that we still nurture both of those impulses. We nurture the impulse to discriminate and to uh, unfairly treat people, and we nurture you know, the opposite impulse as well. Let me ask you, before I get to my final question, I'm struck here as we talk about this history, was there anything that you learned in the course of this that you were especially surprised or fascinated by in terms of the history of the organization? Well, there's a lot that I learned. Um, I mean, but in terms of whether there's a big thing that I learned, yeah, uh, and, and maybe a few. I guess I hadn't realized how intimately involved the ACLU had been in terms of crafting what I would call our our modern definition of free speech. Mm -hmm. I think like a lot of people, you know, who had not had the occasion to sit down and do months of research, years of research, really, really, uh, looking at this, I had sort of just sort of, oh yeah, we've always had, you know, since the um, Bill of Rights, it was ratified, we've always had free speech in this country. And 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 yes, there have been some times where we have violated it, but we're sort of respected it as a value. That's really not true. What happened um, in the early part of the last century was a radical rethinking of what free speech implied, what it meant, how it should operate. And I, and I guess that's the big takeaway that, that, that I had. I mean, of course, I was much less familiar with the intimate history of many of the things that the ACLU had done. So I had no idea that the ACLU had been involved in some of the things that it had been involved in. But I, but I think, but I think the, the real big takeaway for me was just how, um, in some ways, tenuous this right of um, rough free speech is, you know, and, and how it it totally evolved, has, it totally has evolved over the last hundred years. Do you expect that somebody's going to be able to write a history at the 200th anniversary of the ACLU? You think we'll be able to hang around that long? I have no idea. Uh, organizations obviously come and go. But I do think that 200 years from now, there'll be a lot to say about the evolution of free speech because, because, because the challenges are constantly changing. And we have a whole new set of challenges brought on by new technology, um, by the internet age, uh, by social media that were not even imaginable you know, 30 years or so ago. And you know, facial recognition technologies, everything like that, you know, which, which, is, which is changing. So if the question is, is there gonna be a role for an organization that's struggling with and fighting for issues of civil liberties? I think absolutely. Will that be the ACLU? It may very well be. Um, yeah, the ACLU has certainly grown and, and um, strengthened itself over the past hundred years. Or, or maybe other organizations, who knows? Um, I certainly don't, but certainly the challenge will still be there. 
Well, thank you so much. You have been incredibly generous with your time, sharing your thoughts, and I, I really appreciate you coming and talking to us today. Thanks, Ed. It's been a pleasure for me as well. Listeners can order Mr. Kosa's book online anywhere that you get your books. Thank you for listening to Talking Liberties throughout 2020. We appreciate your following us. Talking Liberties is produced by Max Bever. Our content supervisor is Kimberly Koziel. Our executive director is Colleen Connell. You can learn more about the work of the ACLU on our website at aclu-il.org. Subscribe to this podcast and rate us. It really does help. Or you can contact us directly at talkingliberties, one word, at aclu-il.org. Until the new year, this is Talking Liberties with the ACLU of Illinois.